stereo. Okay, it's on. Good evening, everyone. Topic for tonight is Eli Cohen, Israel's most famous spy. Our man in Damascus, correct. Eli Cohen was born in Alexandria, Egypt in 1924 to a family that was a Syrian Jewish family, originally from Aleppo. His father, Shaul Cohen, had moved uh, from Syria to Egypt in 1914. And... Eli Cohen grew up in an environment that was uh, hostile to Zionism. His family was deeply Zionistic. They would eventually make Aliyah to Israel, but the environment in Egypt was virulently not just anti-Zionist, but in many ways anti-Jewish at certain points. And so it was an uncomfortable existence for him. In the 1940s, he gets involved in Zionist uh, activities and underground operations. He tries to enlist in the Egyptian military because there's a compulsory draft in 1947, but is rejected on grounds of suspicious loyalty. Now, Jews could pay their way out of serving if they wanted to uh, give the government the money. He preferred not to give the government the money. He wanted to, He volunteered to serve, of course. Not that he had any interest in fighting for the Egyptians against Israel, or the future Jewish state, but he was rejected anyway. They knew that he wasn't uh, an Egyptian patriot. From 1948 and onward, Eli Cohen is involved in Operation Goshen. Now, what might Operation Goshen be? From the name itself, it should give it away. Egypt, the transfer of Jews from Egypt to Israel. But of course, this was a clandestine operation because Jews were not allowed to move directly from Egypt to Israel. It wasn't easy for Egyptian Jews to leave Egypt at all. But if they could, they had to go via a third country. And so uh, the Mossad Aliyabet, the Israeli government's uh, underground wing of uh, encouraging Jewish immigration from hostile countries uh, facilitated or uh, conducted Operation Goshen and Eli Cohen was one of their main men uh, on the ground in Egypt. In 1949, his family, his parents and his siblings moved to Israel. He stays in Egypt to finish a degree in electronics, but also to be a Jewish communal uh, operative and a Zionist functionary. In the early 50s, there was an episode that is known in Hebrew as Esek Bish, which means the unpleasant business or the ugly affair. It was the Lavon affair. And in order to understand the, the career of Eli Cohen, you have to understand the role that he played in the Lavon affair, or what was known as Operation Susanna. Operation Susanna was a moronic enterprise. It's, it made no sense whatsoever except in the minds of the handful of people who hatched it. And even to this day, it is still unclear who those people were. A government in Israel fell and Ben-Gurion was knocked out of politics over this very controversy. It seems that certain elements within the Israeli uh, military intelligence wing, the Amman, favored the idea of doing false flag terrorist operations in Egypt that could be then blamed not on Israel, but on the Egyptian communists, the Muslim Brotherhood, and general radicals in Egypt 
so as to give the impression that the Egyptian state under the free officers, at that point under Nasser, was not a stable country, not a stable government, but rather was anarchic and could not be trusted by the Western powers. And that um, American efforts to cozy up to Egypt, um, and for that matter, Western efforts in general to get close to the Egyptian regime, might then uh, go away and the relationship would sour, and Egypt would be uh, marginalized in the international community. That was the theory, that if you do a, fo- a, a few false flag operations, kill a few people, burn up a f- uh, blow up a few buildings, Egypt will suffer in, in, in its international standing. Now, the, the reason why Israel was so concerned about this was because of Nasser's desire to nationalize the Suez Canal and to play a more robust role in world affairs. Uh, so the hope was to reduce the significance of Egypt on the world stage. Well, who's going to conduct these operations and what is actually going to be done? Local Egyptian Jews are for the most part going to be the ones running the operation, not Israeli spies. So Egyptian Jews are recruited by Unit 131 of the IDF uh, to blow up cinemas and the United States Information uh, Agency building in Alexandria. The operation was only uh, minimally successful, with a few casualties. Some people were killed, and the intention was in those episodes not to kill people, rather just to blow up buildings, but things don't always go as according to plan. Uh, And the plotters were found out for two basic reasons. One is because in one case, a bomb didn't explode at the right time. It, it caught fire while still on the person of one of the plotters, and so he was easily found and arrested. The other is because one of the Israeli um, operatives who was conducting the whole um, operation, Avrami Elad, or Abraham Seidenberg, actually was in cahoots with the Egyptians and was uh, working against his own country. He was a turncoat Jew, uh, who, so, who later was caught selling secrets to Egypt and served 10 years in jail uh, from 1956 to 1966 uh, and died in the 1980s. But he, he was a, 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 a real uh, double agent, but operating primarily for the Egyptians against Israeli interests, and he ratted out those who were conducting Operation Susanna. What is Eli Cohn's involvement in all this? Uh, being paid. It was pure, non-ideological, it was purely getting paid. Eli Kohn was one of the Egyptian Jews who were involved in the Esegbish. However, he was not one of the people who carried out the actual bombings. And so when the Egyptian authorities arrested people, he was arrested among the others, but could not be charged, could not be prosecuted successfully for lack of evidence. So, the, again, the Egyptians knew that Eli Kohn was up to no good, was a Jew who had Zionist sympathies and was working for the Zionists, but they really couldn't prove it, so they had to let him go. But he was horribly uh, uh, shaken up psychologically from the fact that several of his co-conspirators were executed. Shmu- uh, Moshe Marzuk and Shmuel, uh, Shmuel Azar were, were uh, hung uh, in... Uh, in, in Cairo, in a public, in a public square, uh, public death penalty, and Eli Cohn was there to watch it happen. That changed his personality. He, at that point, w- wanted vengeance against the Arab world. He would have his chance in the years ahead. In 1955, Eli Cohn is recruited by the Mossad, actually goes to Israel for training, 
who goes back to Egypt in the hopes of carrying out further missions, but nothing really is happening. In 1956, the uh, Israel-Egypt War takes place, and all this, the usual suspects among Egyptian Jewry were expelled from the country, Eli Cohen included, for uh, suspicion of espionage against the state. And so in 1957, early in 57, Eli Cohen arrives in Israel. Arriving in Israel, he takes a job for the Defense Ministry as a counterintelligence uh, clerk. Not exactly a high-profile job, not a job that he particularly liked. He wanted to uh, apply for the most uh, for the Mossad to be a field officer, but he was rejected. He was rejected because the psychological profile on him was that he had an overbearing uh, sense of self-importance, and that upon getting deep into a into a project, he was unable to assess accurately the level of risk involved. And of course, that ultimately would be his undoing about six, six years later when he gets caught. So he was at first rejected by the Mossad for being, you know, very talented, but too much of a liability because of what he might do while on the job. Now, wh- what kind of uh, qualities did he have that they were looking for, which ultimately would win out and he would get his job years later? Uh, number one, he looked Arab. He had dark skin. When he grew a mustache, he really looked like he was right off the streets of Cairo or Damascus. His uh, language abilities were impressive. He was a native speaker of Arabic. He also spoke French and a little bit of Spanish and English. Most significantly, he had near photographic memory. Um, So with that kind of mental ability it was hard for the Israeli intelligence community to pass up the opportunity to use his services. So, in 1959, he's not working for the Mossad, he's not working for the Defense Department at that point, he's just uh, uh, an employee of some accounting firm in Tel Aviv. He gets married to Nadia Majal, an Iraqi-born Jew, and they have uh, three children over the next six years, Sophie, Irit, and Shai, in 1960, he loses his job. Yeshomrim, there are those who will say that the Mossad had him fired, that they arranged that he should lose his job so that he'd be desperate for employment and would turn to them because now they wanted him. At first, they rejected him in 57, but by 1960, there was a change of heart. That Mayor Amit, who was uh, deputy director of the Mossad at that point, was looking through the case files of all the rejected applicants because they didn't have the right man for a job that meant infiltrating an Arab country. So, they look back at Ellie Cohn's file, he seems to be the right man. Did his wife know anything of his past? No. Well, I'm not sure what he told his wife about his activities in Egypt in the 1950s, but she certainly knew nothing of his activities from the time he was recruited in 1960 up until the moment of his capture when uh, the, the head of the Mossad had to, to come to her and say he was captured and, by the way, he was a spy working in Syria. Um, so for five years, she thought he was uh, an arms purchaser for the Defense Department, going on long missions in secret places, purchasing uh, uh, military supplies, not doing uh, reconnaissance in an Arab country. 
So they want him. He needs work. He calls. Okay, he's going to start working. He's trained in firearms. He's trained in uh, surveillance methods, which will be the most important part of his job, and coding and decoding of information. What is the, the goal? The goal is to somehow infiltrate the elite of Syrian society and get information on government activities. Why is it so important to infiltrate Syria, of all Arab countries? Well, Syria. Because a few things. Number one, ever since the armistice agreement in 1949, the Golan Heights had been uh, a danger zone for Israel as the kibbutzim of the eastern Galilee were exposed to, to mortar fire. And the, the Syrians periodically would just uh, start shooting. Also, there was a water issue. And this may have been the most important of them all. The headwaters of the Jordan River, the upper Jordan, north of the, of the Sea of Galilee, are the Chatzbani, the Banyas, and the, the Dan, all of which are in Sir, at that point in Syrian territory. There is an, a desire on the part of Israel to develop the national water carrier, which will bring water from the north to all parts of the country so that the country doesn't have to rely upon uh, aquifer water or well water as had been the case in the first decades of the state's existence. But if you're going to move water from the north to the south, there had better be water in the north. So the Syrians figure, well, we'll divert the headwaters of the Jordan and kill Israel by thirst. And so massive engineering works are put into place to try to divert the water and Israel needs good, accurate intelligence as to where this is happening in order for the IAF, the Israel Air Force, to, by 1964, blow it all to smithereens and dissuade the Syrians and the Arabs generally from trying to tinker with Israel's water supply. Later, the, uh, a concern you know, by, by the mid-60s, by 1964, will be Syrian support for the PLO, which is established in that year, in particular for Fatah, uh, which uh, is conducting terrorist raids against the, the kibbutzim of the Eastern Galilee with Syrian sponsorship. Also, there's a desire to know more about the relationship between Egypt and Syria. Bear in mind that from 1958 to 1961, there was no Egypt and there was no Syria. What was it? The United Arab Republic. Okay? Now, the United Arab Republic was not very united ever. Yeah. Truth be told, the Syrians and the Egyptians didn't really get along, and Nasser only was interested in the United Arab Republic because it gave some sort of token, symbolic name to his desire for pan-Arab nationalism under his rule. But it fizzled out because of a, of a coup that took place in 1961 and was not going to be re-established ever but Israel didn't know that yet. It wanted to have a man on the ground in Damascus to, to feel out what is the attitude of the Syrian political establishment and political class in terms of co uh, concerted action with Egypt. Of course, that kind of information would have been re very relevant in 1973 when the two, those two states conspired to wage war against Israel on Yom Kippur. But it's exactly that sort of information. What are the Arabs f feeling about each other that can only be known if you have a man on the inside? Okay. 
So for all these reasons, Israel wants uh, to infiltrate Syria. But how do you do that? It's nearly impossible. Well, Eli Cohen is going to do it. And he's going to do it uh, in a roundabout way. He's going to go to Argentina, to Buenos Aires. What's in Buenos Aires? Well, there's an expatriate Syrian community in Buenos Aires. But more importantly, there's one man who the Israelis feel will at some point in the future ascend to a leadership position in Syria when he can get back in the country. And this is Amin al-Hafiz, who had been an important part of the, uh, the military hierarchy before the 1961 coup, but having been on the losing team, he was exiled, so to speak, to be the military attaché to Argentina. I mean, that's like a, a position you, you, you give to someone who's the low man on the totem pole. But Israel thinks that at some point, when the Ba'ath Party, of which Amin al-Hafiz is a uh, leading a player, when they take over, he'll be in charge. Possibly a, you know, a defense minister, a prime minister, who knows? And so Eli Cohn is being sent to Argentina to cultivate relationships with the expatriate community there and cozy up to Amin al-Hafiz. How does he do it? What is his cover story? So the cover story is that he is a businessman in a textile industry, import-export of textiles and other luxury items. Very vague. Vague enough that you could get away with it and no one's going to know that you're bluffing. And that the, the, uh, the family story is that his family was from Beirut, from Lebanon, but bear in mind that Lebanon doesn't exist. Lebanon never existed in my mind. It's Syria. It's greater Syria. So if you're from Le- if you're from Beirut, but you're an Arab nationalist, you think of yourself yourself as a Syrian. Especially if your family leaves in the 1920s before the the, the Lebanese state is in existence. So the fictitious uh, Kamel Amin Tabit, aka Ali Khan, the Tabit family came from greater Syria in the 1920s, moved to Argentina. And it has been his lifelong goal to go back to Syria and to see the, the, the glory of greater Syria. And so he wants to use his uh, profits from his import-export business to support the Ba'ath Party's takeover of the Syrian government and the victory of greater Syria over its adversaries, most importantly, the Jews, Israel. That's the, the story of Kamal Amin Tabit. So, if you want to impress people, how do you make friends? Well, to quote Homer Simpson, you don't make friends with salad. You make friends with booze, meat, and women. And so we had parties, lavish parties, at which the elite of uh, Arab society in Buenos, Buenos Aires was invited, and the officials of the embassy. He, he wowed them. He was a bachelor. Okay? Eli Khan was a married man, but Kamil Amin Tabit was a bachelor. And so the, uh, he, he, he was able to um, cultivate a following of ladies, and it was, the, it was the hottest game in town. He is successful at befriending Amin al-Hafiz, and Amin al-Hafiz goes back to Syria in 1962. 
with the Ba'ath Party uh, takeover of the country in 1963, he ends up becoming uh, so-called President of the State, which is a figurehead title, but a very, very high-ranking official. What happens to Eli Cohen? Eli Cohen goes back to Israel and is given instructions about what to do when he gets to Damascus. He sees his wife. Wife's a little suspicious. Where you been? But he can't say anything. She asks a lot of questions, but answers are not forthcoming. Uh, They have another baby. And then he's off to Syria. While in Syria, where does he live? He lives across the street from the defense headquarters. Chutzpah takes an apartment literally across the street from the Pentagon. That's their their equivalent of the Pentagon. And he establishes radio contact with Israel by means of a device that was like an attaché case that had a false bottom in which he was able to send uh, 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 radio messages, coded messages. The code was, of course, known to nobody other than Eli Cohen and whoever's on the receiving end back in Tel Aviv in the dungeon, in the military uh, uh, headquarters. Ironically, one of the people who worked in Tel Aviv on the receiving end of these messages was none other than Eli Cohen's brother, Maurice, except that neither brother knew the other one was involved. Until... At some point in 1964, late into Cohen's uh, career in, in, in Syria, Maurice figured it out. And years and years later, in the late 1990s, Maurice wrote an article in which he explained how he was able to figure out that his brother, uh, that Eli Cohen was Kamal Amin Tabit. It's because the messages were all in code, except for the last line. Customarily, the last line was in plain language. But it had nothing to do with, with, with military secrets or espionage in, in Damascus. It had to do with his personal life. And so one message was, did Nadia get the sewing machine? So there's no harm in asking, did Nadia get the sewing machine from a uh, standpoint of having it exposed by the Syrians because they don't know who Nadia is. They don't know who Eli Cohen is. But Maurice knows that his sister-in-law's name is Nadia, and, and he happened to visit her apartment the next day, and, she, and he saw she had a new sewing machine. Then, another time, the message was, Fifi took her first steps. And it turned out that the day before, Sophie, uh, Ellie Cohn's daughter, had taken her first steps, and Maurice had known about that. So, he's putting two and two together and realizing that his brother, who is away so-called as an arms buyer for the defense ministry, is actually a Mossad spy working in Syria. On, the, on Eli Cohen's last trip back to Israel in 1964, about which we'll say more in a, in a few moments, uh, Maurice uh, was talking to Eli, and Eli asked him, did you get a phone line? In those years, getting a phone line in Israel was no small thing. Um, but... He said to him, well, you know, you work for the, post, the, for the post office. It should be easy for you to get a, a phone line. Now, the story was that he worked for the post office. In fact, Maurice worked for the Defense Department and was involved in coded messages. So, yeah, 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 I, I, here's my number. And he starts giving the number for Ellie to write it down, except instead of giving his actual number, he gives uh, Kamal Amin Tabit's number in Damascus. And as Ellie's writing it down, he gets halfway through the number and realizes, whoa, the number I've just been given means that Maurice knows my story. 
and he runs off to go to the supermarket and doesn't come home. Um, Maurice's handlers, a few hours later, call him and say, you keep this quiet. So it was clear that the brothers knew each one was on to each other, but they can't say anything to anyone else. All right. Getting back to, to Syria, the situation in Syria. Um, 1962, 1963, Eli Cohen is cultivating relationships with the highest-ranking uh, Syrian officials, and he's very, very successful at extracting information from all these guys. One of his uh, favorite ways of holding uh, the possibility of blackmail over some of his uh, so-called friends was that many of the high-ranking officers were married men, but who wanted to have dalliances on the side and needed a place to go. They would go to, to Kamal Amin Tabit's apartment to have their extramarital affairs. So that was a, a, a piece of information that Eli Cohen had over these various characters to use uh, in his favor if he needed it. Now, what was he looking for? He was looking for information about defenses and offensive military positions on the Golan Heights. The problem is that the Golan Heights was a closed zone. No one was allowed there. No civilian Syrian citizen was allowed to go to the Golan Heights. And even within the military, uh, it was a restricted area. So how is he going to find out this information? Well, if you cozy up to the right people, and you're seen as being truly their friend, and they trust you, maybe, just maybe, you can get a tour of the, uh, of the, of the Heights. And so Amin al-Hafiz eventually gave him a tour of the Heights, at a time when it is claimed, and this is a, a point that, that the historians debate over whether it's true or this is just a rumor and, and a legend, that Hafez was considering making Kamal Amin Tabit the deputy defense minister. Mm-hmm. That had it gone through, Eli Cohen, the spy, would have been deputy defense minister of Syria. We have no way of knowing whether this is true. Hafez himself, who lived a very long life and died at the age of 91 in, in 2008, um, vociferously denied that it was ever a, c- a consideration, but then again, he's just covering himself because he was totally embarrassed. Yeah? So was he the only Mossad operative in We have no way of knowing. I mean, uh, he, he's, he's known to us only because he got caught. Right. Had he not been caught, his name would be among all the many others who, uh, who are the anonymous heroes, whether they lived or died. Okay, so... He was, uh, as far as we can tell, as far as all the historians are concerned, he was operating alone. That he did not have anyone, any other Israeli uh, citizen or even Jew working with him to, to gain information. He was a lone operator. Okay. Wouldn't he be like, vetted out or even to small community? Wouldn't they know somebody would know somebody else of family? And here he had no, no family. It goes to show you the stupidity of the Syrian uh, elite, whether the military elite or the political diplomatic elite, that they couldn't figure out that he was a non-existent person. Um, That has always, ever since I started reading on this topic years and years ago, I was wondering to myself, how did they not research him and realize that he's a phantom, that he doesn't really exist? Okay, so... So the concern about him being identified was a very real concern in Israel 
the Israelis, the the the, uh, the handlers in Mossad, did not want him walking around in Israel on extended uh, trips home because there are Arab spies in Israel. Uh, and in fact, at the tail end of his life, when Israel is desperately trying to secure his release and prevent his execution, one of the offers that was made was for a swap of, his, of Syrian spies caught by the Israelis uh, t- together with a whole bunch of other stuff, other goodies, in return for a commutation of Eli Cohen's sentence. Well, there, yeah, sure, he could have been, he could have been recognized in, on the streets of Tel Aviv as being the same man that, that a Syrian spy saw on the streets of Damascus, which would have totally blown his cover, which is why his trips back home to Israel were very short and had to be kept very much under wraps. Just, you know, go home, see your wife, see your kids, and that's about it. Get instructions and get out. But don't be seen on the streets of Israel. There was also the concern that he'd be recognized by Jews in Syria, except that was less of a problem because he had never been there. His father was from Aleppo, but he was from Egypt. And on the assumption that he didn't look anything like he, what he might have looked as a child in Egypt, no, no Arab was going to recognize him as having been a Jew. Uh, there was a minor concern, but not, not nearly as, as serious a concern as him being recognized by an Arab spy on the streets, on the streets of Israel. Okay, so he's able to go to the, to the Golan Heights because uh, he had won over the trust of the highest-ranking officials. Well, what, do you, what does he do when he's there? He is a guest and maybe he's an advisor of some kind offering guidance to the Assyrian, the Assyrian military about how they might want to conduct their affairs. But what he cannot do, he absolutely cannot do, is be seen taking notes, trying to you know, be seen um, absorbing this information down to the very last detail. Because after all, he's just a guest who's on, the, on a ride on a, uh, through southern Syria with his buddies. He, if, if he is seen as being overly interested in the minutia of Syrian defenses on the heights, that's a reason to be suspicious. So this is where his great memory comes into play. His prodigious memory, he's able to, to recall and regurgitate when he gets back to Israel to the Mossad headquarters... <laughs> Every single one of the 45 pos- uh, positions of the Syrian guns on the Golan Heights, including details about the kinds of guns, the number of troops uh, manning each particular uh, gun emplacement, and the kind of perimeter defenses like barbed wire or mines that surround each of those locations. This was information that was desperately needed because the IAF could bomb... the the Golan Heights to smithereens for a month and still miss every one of those locations because they're small and the Golan Heights is a fairly large area. You don't hit every single square inch of a territory unless you know exactly what you're looking for. And so he was able to, within just a few, uh, a few meters, give precise coordinates of all these gun emplacements. This would serve Israel quite well in the Six-Day War and facilitated the victory over Syria in two days. Remember, the, 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 the Six-Day War is really not a Six-Day War. It's uh, basically a four-day war against Egypt, a three-day war against Jordan, and a two-day war against Syria. Only 
Friday and Shabbos of the Six-Day War, the last two days, were uh, fought in the north on the Golan Heights. It was the last of the three major uh, confrontations of the war, delayed in part because the Syrians didn't initiate conflict, as opposed to the Jordanians who did, and the Egyptians who did. The Syrians were passive, hoping to you know, get away with not, not having to fight at all. But Israel took advantage of the situation and said, the fog of war, we'll, take, we'll, co- we'll conquer the Golan Heights. 48 hours is a very short window of opportunity. But they were able to do it because they knew exactly what they were fighting against. They knew every single gun emplacement. And the other factor, this is famous, anyone who knows anything about Eli Cohen knows about the eucalyptus trees. The, so it is true, it's not, it's not legendary, it is true that the, uh, the Syrian military did plant trees near the various gun emplacements on the heights, and it did make it easier to identify their location. But even without those trees, uh, Cohen's uh, um, information that he had g- given over to military intelligence was in and of itself probably sufficient to know exactly where to attack. Was it true that was Cohen's recommendation to plant, plant those trees? Yes, yes, that... that that is known to be true. It, it, sa- it sounds legendary, apocryphal, like it couldn't possibly be true. It is true. Okay, that, that uh, Cohen suggested to the Syrian military that to, in order to provide camouflage for the gun emplacements and to provide shade from the sun for the, the Syrian soldiers who were manning the gun emplacements, that trees should be uh, planted there and... Uh, Serve the du- du- that dual purpose, except that all they in fact did was expose where the guns were and made it easier for Israel to attack. Okay, so all this uh, is two years after Eli Cohen has sadly been, been executed. Okay, how did uh, Eli Cohen get caught? That's the question. We know that he was a tremendous spy, tremendous ab- abilities. He was sending back information more than the Mossad ever could have hoped for. Why did he get caught? Well, in 1964, on his last trip back home to Israel, he had a premonition that maybe he shouldn't go back to Syria. And he told his handlers that he thought that uh, maybe it's, it's time to, to call this off. Number one, he was tired of being away from his family. You can't blame the guy. It had been already three years of being away from family life, being away from Israel, being in dangerous circumstances. At this point, he's 39 years old. Actually, 40 years old at that point. So he's born. Yeah, he's, he's just turned 40 uh, on his last trip to, back home to Israel. The other factor is, he thinks that maybe they're onto him. He has this premonition. But the Mossad wants him to go back one more time. Why? Because more information could be could be gleaned. He's 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 gone so far. Uh, you know, he's accomplished so much already. To, to, to lose an asset as valuable as Kamil Amin Tabit, a.k.a. Eli Cohen, would have been a real blow to Israel's intelligence uh, industry. They wanted one more, one more go-around, in particular getting information about Syrian support for the PLO and for Fatah, uh, uh, including cross-border raids, uh, terrorist attacks. So, he goes. But, he gets sloppy. He starts sending much longer messages, coded messages, than he previously used to. 
in the beginning of his uh, time in Damascus, his messages were about once a week, and his uh, transmissions lasted no more than about five to ten minutes. Because you want to play it safe. Well, as long as you're on the radio, you can be discovered. Well, he starts sending messages every day. And he goes on and on for sometimes a half hour to almost an hour. The Syrian uh, counterintelligence agency recognizes that there is a spy at, at a very high level because too much information has been leaked that has resulted in the foiling of various plots that they were hatching. And plus, the major attack by the Israeli Air Force against the uh, engineering works on the, on, the Jordan, on the Jordan River headwaters. So they know something is up, someone is revealing information, it's getting to Israel, but who is it? We don't know. Then they discover the radio transmissions. They know that a transmission is coming from somewhere in Damascus on a somewhat frequent basis, and it's directed in a southwesterly direction. Now, what's southwest of Damascus? Israel, Tel Aviv in particular, Israeli Defense Headquarters. So, they have a feeling that if not an Israeli spy, at least some spy working on behalf of Israel is in the city of Damascus uh, sending information back. So, they need better technology to discover what's really going on, to pinpoint where the transmissions are, ta- are, co- are coming from. So they rent equipment from the Soviet Union. The Russians, who for many, many years, until this very day, are the patrons of the Syrian regime, okay, uh, give the Syrians these vans, these trucks that can drive around the city with high-powered antennas that can figure out where radio transmissions are coming from. But, in order for this system to work, it has to be that that's the only transmission happening at that given moment. So in January of 1965, the city of Damascus observes uh, radio silence for a day. And Eli Cohen, seeing that... uh, Well, we'll get for a minute what he was uh, revealing at that point. He's conducting his usual uh, operations of transmitting information back to Israel. He gets on the machine, and he's tapping away with his code and machine. And the the vans pick up exactly where the, the radio frequency is coming from. And it's coming from where? Right across the street from Syrian military headquarters. So, who lives there? Kamal Amin Tabit, also known as Eli Cohen. They catch him in the middle of a transmission, red-handed. He doesn't even have time to put the box away under the bed. He's literally tapping away at the, at the keyboard as they, bought, they break down his door. What was going on? So in the, uh, in the movie version of what happened, uh, The Impossible Spy with Eli Wallach um, he was uh, sending back a message to Israel to prevent a, a Fatah terrorist attack against Kibbutz Tel Yashuv, which is a fictional uh, kibbutz. Okay? In fact, he was involved in um, revealing information about 
upcoming Fatah activities against Israel. Uh, whether or not it was as urgent as depicted in the movie version, who knows? I mean, this is probably information that will never be fully revealed. Uh, it's, you know, all these stories, we're working with limited information because the state, uh, the, the state intelligence services are not in the habit of revealing more than whatever got out. So, middle of a transmission, he's caught, he's arrested, he's jailed, he's tortured... And uh, they want to know, who are you? Who do you work for? Because remember, they don't know this yet. They just know that he had been this uh, former Argentinian, expatriate Syrian businessman who threw a lot of money around and supported the Ba'ath Party and had befriended everyone and had almost been made deputy defense minister. But they don't know his real name. They don't know what what his story is. It comes out that he is Eli Cohen and he works for Israel. But he doesn't reveal anything further. Despite uh, the best attempts through severe torture to get him to spill more, he doesn't. And the truth is he might not have known all that much more. They wanted to know what he revealed to Israel. That he could, through torture, could have been extracted. But in terms of other operations, Eli Khan may have known nothing because he was working for himself. He, he was not in contact with a, with a team, a, a covert team. Um, so he's in jail through May. He goes on trial under, under uh, martial law, guilty of, uh, uh, con- uh, tried for espionage, a treason against the Syrian state, and he is convicted and sentenced to death. So this is now where the state of Israel has to try to intervene. It can't just deny his existence. They want to spare his life. So all the major Western powers are uh, re- solicited um, in some kind of effort to pressure the Syrian regime not to go ahead with the execution. But despite the best efforts of all those countries, and even the Vatican and Pope Paul VI, the Syrians are not interested in holding back. Why? Because they were very embarrassed. The Ba'ath regime, it's, t- it's terribly embarrassing for them that a guy who had infiltrated the highest levels really was an Israeli spy. It looks like they're pathetic, but they couldn't figure that out. Um, so they need to preserve their own standing in the Arab world and in Syria itself. They, ca- they have no choice but to execute uh, Eli Cohen. There isn't, there's, no, there's no possible way for them to be, uh, offer some clemency. Even if Israel uh, is ready and willing to give up many, many Arab spies that are held in Israeli jails, and there were many, doesn't matter. So this is an example of you know, a 10 to 1 uh, trade or a 100 to 1 trade it's not good enough. Okay. So on May 18th, 1965, Eli Cohn's last day of his life, he is told that uh, you know, you're going to be executed this very day. He asks to write a, a, a letter to his wife, and he writes it in French. Why in French? He didn't want his last communication to his family to be in the, in the language of his oppressors. So he, he wasn't going to write it in Hebrew, because they wouldn't have let a Hebrew letter go through. But he didn't want to write it in Arabic, so he wrote it in French. In which he told his wife, you know, don't cry too much over me, get remarried, live a, f- a full life, you know, you're a young woman, don't, don't mourn over me forever. In fact, Nadia never remarried. Um, she preserved the memory of her martyred husband uh, to this very day. So, it's time for the execution, and... He has one last request. He wants to see a rabbi. 
And so the chief rabbi of Damascus is brought out, 80-year-old chief rabbi. They say, Shema Yisrael, and the rabbi goes away. Public execution, he declines to have a, a, ma- a mask over his head, no hood over his head. He wants to be uh, with the noose, but no, no, nothing, nothing blocking his face. He's executed, and then his body is allowed to remain hanging uh, on the... Uh, on the gallows for about six hours and they put uh, a placard over his body in Arabic writing indicating this is, this is Eliyahu ben Shaul Cohen Israeli spy executed for crimes against the Syrian people yada 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 um, there was no known footage of the execution for many years but as some of you might be familiar in September of this year, of 2016, footage was released on YouTube and is now available. You don't see the, the, the act of the execution, of the, the knocking of the chair from underneath his feet where he's killed, but you do see the body dangling off the gallows and you see the crowd uh, cheering and watch, you know, looking on. How this video resurfaced, no one is quite sure. Uh, many uh, articles were written in the Israeli press a few months ago about it, uh, how this might have happened, but no one really knows. Uh, is it definitely footage from 1965? Is it real or is it fake? It looks real, and I have no reason to doubt that it's real. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that someone in the crowd, whether the Syrian government or just a private citizen, had a, ca- a camera and was rolling footage uh, as these things were, go- were, were, were taking place. Okay. What about his body? Burial. So, of course, the state of Israel made a request to have the body returned. That request was denied. He was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Damascus. But then, the Syrian regime was concerned that maybe Israel will mount a a, a commando raid into Damascus to try to recover the corpse. Now, Yes, Israel is tremendous, and it went to Entebbe and rescued 100 people. But the idea that somehow it could go to the cemetery in Damascus and, and, and recover or exhume a corpse is a little bit far-fetched, but then again, the Syrians were paranoid about this. And so they moved the body multiple times till eventually it is, it is theorized that, he, like you know, Jimmy Hoffa, he was buried underneath a construction site, and so the body could never be recovered. No one knows where it is now. Um, but... As, as late as 2005, Nadia was still trying her best to uh, pressure the Israeli government, to pressure the Syrian government uh, to return the body. Had there been a Syrian-Israeli peace treaty uh, at some point, which was you know, somewhat cl- you know, close to happening during the Rabin administration of 93, and then later in the Barak administration of 99-2000, where there were talks with Farouk Shara, this issue was brought up that had there been an agreement, maybe the, the body would have been returned. But in the absence of an agreement, it's certainly not going to happen. Okay. He's on the cement, how are they going to return it? Who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, maybe they would try... Uh, fake it? I wouldn't put it past the Syrians to fake it. Okay. So, one of the things, one of the things that um, emerged from the, in hindsight is that Eli Cohn realized... He was being uh, watched carefully by 
certain figures in the Syrian counterintelligence community who didn't trust him. Yes, he had made friends in very, very high places, but not everyone was convinced that he was a true Arab patriot. The one man in particular who was very, very suspicious was Ahmed Suadani. Ahmed Suadani, a leader in the counterintelligence, was, uh, was curious to know what is, this, what is the personal background of Kamal Amintabit, as you suggested. I mean, the guy made, was made up out of whole cloth. Someone's bound to figure that out eventually. So Suadani, more than anyone else, was on to this question of who is this man? Why do we know so little about him? How did he just emerge as a player with loads of cash to throw at our bath party? So he watched him carefully and was the man who conducted the raid that arrested him eventually. This is a rare example of someone who was extremely paranoid but turned out to be right. Suadani was, uh, was rewarded for his paranoia being proven correct by being made uh, chief of staff of the Syrian military. So his uh, success in capturing the spy elevated him up the ranks uh, in the Syrian army. What was Eli Cohen's um, feeling about playing the role of an Arab? That's a question that some of the historians uh, like to ask. Because sometimes when you're undercover for so long, you end up uh, identifying with your, your, your fake person, persona. What, what was the, who was the real Eli Cohen? And that he remained the same person all throughout. So, he was obviously someone who had an intimate connection with the Arab world, yet identified as a Jew and had this uh, animosity towards the Arab world. The fact that he was willing to cooperate in Operation Susanna and be complicit in the deaths of people in Cairo and in Alexandria means that, yes, he doesn't mind getting down and dirty and doing it against his, own, his uh, fellow citizens of an Arab country. And why? Because he understood the anti-Semitism, the anti-Judaism of the Arab world. And he was a devout Jew early in life. During his time as a fake Syrian businessman, obviously he was not keeping kosher and the Shabbos, and he may have even had a couple of girlfriends along the way. It is claimed that he had 17 lovers. I don't know if that's Lush and Hara about him, or it's true. But, or pr- whatever it might be. <laughs> but the point is that for a long stretch of time, he was not living a pious lifestyle. He couldn't. So, but in any event, his... His Jewish identity never went away. Even more so than being an Israeli, he was a Jew. And a Jew who has a problem with the Arab world. Because the Arab world has problems with Jews. And in his discussions, when he tried to befriend high-ranking Syrian officials, what did he do? He repeatedly emphasized how the great war is against the Jews. The Yahud, which is a, is a code word just for Israel. But why? Why emphasize this? Because if you want to build up your credentials as someone who is a, an Arab nationalist and is trying to uh, make friends in, 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 in Arab military, 
what, what's the best thing you can do? Say you're an anti-Jewish bigot. That's the best thing you can possibly do. But he understood that, yes, if that's the attitude of the officer corps of Egypt or of Syria, it's because they really hate Jews. And he, as a Jew, must hate them back. And so, although he was an Arab, so-called Arab Jew, he hated the Arab passionately and loved the Jew passionately. And that's what animated his work on behalf of Israel. And that's why, in, in his dying moments, he wanted the rabbi, he wanted to pray, put on a talus. Uh, it was important to him, his Jewish identity. Could it have also been he's sticking it to the Arabs? Uh, maybe, maybe. That, uh, that he's going to ex- express a, 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 a Jewish fervor at the last moments, that they can't strip him of that. Okay. Now, after his death, of course, the Six-Day War showed how important his espionage work had been. But what about uh, his uh, legacy? Well, at least in terms of his family, they were very protective of his legacy and promoted uh, the, the, the history of Eli Cohn. In 1977, there was a bar mitzvah. And at this bar mitzvah was Menachem Begin, Shimon Peres, Chaim Herzog, and a whole host of other famous VIPs. Why? It was Eli Cohn's son, Shai's bar mitzvah. And they all came to pay homage to his, his, Shai's martyred father. That they understood what he had accomplished for, for, for Medinat Yisrael. Um, was there ever anyone following Eli Kohn, who achieved that kind of degree of success in the, the world of, Isra- of Israeli spycraft? Well, we don't know. We can't know. We can't know. Maybe there was someone who infiltrated a very high level of another Arab country, but because they didn't get caught and threatened with execution, their name is not known to us. Therefore, Eli goes down in history as the greatest of the greats. Probably he was. I doubt there was anyone else who, who excelled to the level that he did. Because what he did was even beyond what the Mossad could even fathom when they first started in 1960-61. Uh, but, in the end, his demise was as predicted. That he took too great of a risk, he didn't understand the dangers, or he miscalculated the dangers and got sloppy. Which leads to one final point. And this is a very, very controversial point. Yeshomrim, there are those who say that he couldn't escape the life. The authorities wouldn't let him get out of the mission, and so he became sloppy for the sake of getting himself caught and killed. It's it's hard to, to accept that. It's very distasteful to even to suggest it. But those who are in the business say that it's not entirely impossible and these things do happen that people tire of the clandestine lifestyle, but they know they can't go back to the, the, the mundane, the ordinary lifestyle, either because psychologically they can't, or because their handlers won't let them. And so the only choice is to do things that are dangerous, high risk, high reward, but knowing that the high risk might result in the ultimate price. And a, a, a personal acceptance that if it comes, it comes. So I don't know if that's what happened to Eli Cohn. Nobody can know that, but it is a suggestion that has been put out there in the in the literature. Okay, we'll stop here. Any questions? Yeah. Was his brother on the other end of the receiver throughout? 
No, only for part of the time in 1964. Yeah. Any other questions? Who's next week? Next week? We'll, uh, I'll tell you in a second. Yeah. 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 Supposedly, there was a conversation in in the prison shortly before his execution, in which Amin al Hafez asked Eli Cohen whether or not the friendship that existed between Kamen Amal Tabit, the fake Eli Cohen, and him was in in the in the in any sense real or sincere. In other words, if you weren't Eli Cohen, if you really were Kamal Amin Tabit, would we have been friends in, a, in, a, in an alternative universe? To which Eli Cohen responded, supposedly, yes. That in other words, they really did like each other at the personal level, it's just that Eli Cohen was an Israeli spy. But he not, had he not been one, things might have worked out differently. These are the kind of bizarre conversations that happen when you, when you have someone living a double life who is so good at it that they, they create another world that was a pleasant world. An alternate reality, but that was their reality for a good three and a half years. Uh, with, a, with a hesitation to let it go. Yeah. Was Ellie Cohen's wife and family compensated after his yes. uh, capture and Yes. The, the, the state made sure that they, they, did, uh, they were taken care of financially after the fact. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so next week we will discuss the opposite of Eli Cohen, Yisrael Beer, or Israel Bar, who was a spy against Israel, who rose to the highest levels of the Israeli military. <laughs>